0: and this is Film Details, a podcast devoted to exploring the way philosophical wisdom and insights fill in the details of my favorite books, films, and works of art, provoking thoughtful discussion and meaning-making in the everyday life routine. I've always loved to draw, since I was really little. For a long time I thought I wanted to be a Disney animator, but my problem is that I really don't work well on strict deadlines like that. I have to be really in the right mood or inspired or my stuff just really isn't very good. I can't really draw all day every day. I just don't have the stamina for that. So I abandoned that notion, but artistic stuff is still a pretty important part of my life routine. Uh, I just have a lot of different hobbies now. I still like to draw, but my strengths really lie in color, maybe some composition, not so much in the technique. To me, growing up though, art was generally something that was realistic, it was tangible, and I never really had a taste for the abstract stuff. I always thought that splatter paint, pollocky paintings were just for bad hotel rooms, and that was all you saw them on, was the walls and stuff like that. I never really saw the appeal. So, when I first went to Lacma and saw with my own eyes all the old postmodern y pop art stuff, I was kind of infuriated. I knew about Warhol, and I still really like Lichtenstein, but I had a really hard time with rectifying in my brain how things like that could exist in the same breath as Michelangelo and Rossetti and things like that. So thinking about it now, I can see why people had such polarizing reactions to painters like Picasso, or even the expressionists and pointillists. The piece of work that got me worked up the most at LACMA, though, I don't really know a ton about it, so next time I go, I'm going to have to really do some reading on it. I guess you got to know your enemies, right? But it's around a corner in the back of a big room, off to the side by another doorway, so it's actually kind of easy to miss, or at least it was when I saw it. Um, But it's a square piece of canvas turned and mounted on the wall in a diamond shape from the corner. It's pretty blank. From afar, it actually looks blank. Uh, But once you get up close to it, you can see that there's a white line that's painted right down the center of it. Like many people must think when they go through museums like this, I had that thought. Are you freaking kidding me? Like, really? I could have done that. Anyone could do that. But of course, we all say that, you know, that nagging voice that keeps telling us, yeah, but you didn't. And that's also infuriating. So, of course, the reasoning behind movements like these, from kind of the philosophical deconstruction of Derrida, uh, though the whole challenging of the notion of high art, of pop art, all of that makes sense to me. Um, there is this fantastic little book, or it's a pamphlet, it's, it's pretty short, by Tom Wolfe, called The Painted Word. I think it's pretty hilarious, because it's a total critique of the avant-garde, and Tom Wolfe... As someone who's a journalist, just really has a great spin on the humor. Uh, But it's also a good little reductive history of the movements, how pop art got there and what to do with it. Uh, There's an interesting little critique about the way things get defined as art and the exclusivity of the circle that controls that idea. I remember a high school friend of mine who made a comment about herself, that she was a writer who never wrote a book. And I think about that in terms of how one becomes an artist. Do you have to create first, then become the artist, or do you have to be an artist to create? It's like entry-level job descriptions that ask for years of experience. How can one have experience without a job? Uh, Wolff's criticism is that it's difficult to even define in the art world because so much of it is arbitrarily relying upon who's doing the creating and what was created but not really so much on them as it is on the museums and the curators and all the collectors uh, and they very arbitrarily decide and the fad and all that so you have a guy like Banksy and i think everybody knows the name but does anyone really know what the guy looks like i honestly have no idea uh he's just like this elusive scarlet pimpernel Uh, But anyway, you have Banksy, who creates a ton of original artwork, he didn't sign any of it, and then he just randomly sells it at some kind of street fair, and people are buying it for absurdly cheap. Uh, People at the street fair have zero clue that they're buying something from anyone who's got importance or name recognition or anything like that, so they pay the cheap price because they happen to like what they see. They take it home, and then boom! Banksy goes public to say those paintings are his, and all of a sudden the value of those works go from cheap to ridiculous in a moment. This says a couple of things to me. One, the paintings themselves are inherently valueless, or at least only so much as some of the minor level of time and materials are concerned. It's entirely in the name, that's it. Because they're from Banksy, they're worth anything. Two, this says to me that aesthetic qualities don't play near the role we would think. Or do they? So every year I have my students discuss the idea of art. First, I have them define art for themselves. So here are a few of their responses. An expression of imagination to display something. Something artistic made for the express purpose of art. Anything that expresses feelings or creative energy in any way. And then lastly, something that is actually unconditionally beautiful and much more than just the artistic community can appreciate. And that's just a couple of examples. There's a ton of variety in their answers. I get everything from some kind of objectified notion of beauty, to skill, uh, to even the opinion of the viewer. The underlying question looks at the assumption that's made in the definer's mind here about who controls the definition. Is it a universalized truth that exists inherently in the art itself? Or is it the artist who gives definition to a creation as art? Or is it the viewer whose opinion makes the determination? Does it require consensus? Majority rules? So I then give them a huge broad list of things that may or may not be considered art. And includes standard famous paintings, as well as uh, physically artistic works that are done by, like, children. Uh, Written works like poetry, famous novels, religious texts, and even things like 240-character tweets. Musical works and operas and children's dance recitals. Design elements like flower arrangements, models, architectural work like the Eiffel Tower. uh, Along with the reconstructed styles and a 1963 Corvette, because, yeah, of course that's all right there. And I even include most everyday things, like advertisement labels, a person's dyed hair color, freeway uh, graffiti, state flags, clothing, uh, still life that's not designed purposefully on a study desk, and finally some natural elements like the view from a balcony or a four-leaf clover. It's funny to see how few of my students, though, include the book Huck Finn in their list of things that are defined as art. I mean, really? How can fictional novels, arranged for the purpose of expression of ideas, and very carefully chosen, not count? Uh, It seems to fit all the descriptions that I outlined earlier, so unless you're looking at it from the perspective of the opinion of the reader and you hate the book, well, I guess then you have a case. I mean, it's definitely not my favorite either, but I'd have a really hard time dismissing that one myself. Uh, And the ones that get really interesting rely on time and who is doing the work. I think there's a major hang-up over a high school production of Hamlet or a five-year-old's piano recital because these are amateur or maybe or even novice artists, um, if they may even be called that, I don't know. So, again, at what point, if those amateurs keep going, do they become real artists instead of just playing at artists? Uh, Is it once they get paid? Well, then all the struggling artists everyone claims to be are, I guess, false and not artists at all. So, once they create their lists, how do my students justify what they include and what they don't? Well, one included things in the form of paintings or drawings mostly, and didn't really consider all objects to be art, and the unchecked on their list was then more of just creations, which I think is an interesting distinction. But they did include a flower arrangement and a dining table, but not graffiti or a stick figure drawing or brush strokes on a canvas. Uh, Another chose things on the list that were made solely for the purpose of art and not for any other utility. So, no food labels that double as marketing, no dining table for the purpose of eating, no handcrafted cocktail for the purpose of consumption. Consistent, but then we have to think about all those things that made their way into the museum. If you go over to the Getty, you see a ton of relics from the past, vases and jars and things like that, uh, who at once probably had purpose that was functional utility. So we see them now as art. I think of like Greek vases with the stories that are displayed all the way around uh, because the utility no longer exists or at least it isn't accessed. So we do the same kind of thing with furniture also. If you go to the Maloof house or um, some of the other Stickley houses, the, the different uh, architecturists who have yeah, their houses are now their museums. Um, famous stuff on display, you've got chairs that would have originally been sat in, all kinds of standard objects that have been made for normal daily use, but now it's its own museum. Uh, another built a list around things created as representative of feelings or emotions being expressed or things that required some expertise in craftsmanship, but did not include a psychology textbook, which probably took the writers and editors plenty of time and plenty of education to know what to include and how to arrange it effectively. Uh, a food label that, you know, someone's education and design made possible, both with some level of expression, maybe more instructive than emotional, but can't intellect and emotion be completely divorced for humans? I don't know. I mean, on a meta level, here I am putting a lot of hours and thought and choice and personal history into these podcast episodes. And while they're instructive, for sure, and I guess that gives it utility, but after that instructive purpose eventually wears out, Can it be something else, like those vases in the museum, too? Uh, There's definitely an emotional appeal happening here, too. I really enjoy teaching this discussion of art, actually. It's it's one of my favorite parts of the school year. It's one of my favorite, uh, my students' favorite discussions of the year. I'm always looking forward to the spirited debate that pretty much always occurs over the definitions and what's considered art versus not art. Uh, But the story of how I got to teaching this one, I think, is an interesting one. My first full year as a contract teacher here at Costa, I had a full helping of junior college prep American literature and nothing else from first to fifth period. I had a solid group of kids that year and, you know, followed the normal pattern for the most part. First period, like most first periods, generally pretty quiet. It was a good class. Uh, Second period, though, was really academic. I had lots of lively discussion in that one. Everybody's awake by nine. Um... Fifth period was an insane group of kids. I had a kid that would climb through the windows of my classroom. I had a kid that broke one of my bookshelves, and I had really no idea that it even happened until end of the year, last week of school, he brought me a new one that he had built when we still had wood shop. It was awesome, by the way. Still in my house. It's basically my bar now. Hey, thanks, Joe. Uh, I had a girl who fainted from giving blood in one of the blood drives, and the boy in front of her that sat there just watched it happen and did absolutely nothing. Ah... yeah, so I guess really smart kids in that one, too. It's just an odd, weird dynamic. Uh, but then, then there was third period, right after snack, and I basically dreaded this class every day. Um, not every day, I guess, but most days. Uh, I had one who decided outright that everything I said ever was a lie and was incredibly vocal about it, right in the middle of my talking, incessantly. Uh, looking back on it, I can't believe I'll let that crap get to me, honestly. Uh, Those are the kids that actually thrive best in my class now, because they present me the chance to have some kind of class interplay. Entertainment, I guess, but also discussion and tangents, which I like. And and I like to think that I do a pretty good job of wrapping those back into my course content now. And really, that took a lot of time and some practice to develop. But anyway, so I had put together this virtual pop art museum. Um, It's the end of my school year, pretty much, same as it is now. And I'm looking forward to having this discussion about art and the interpretive meaning behind art and all that. Um, And before I started talking about kind of the deconstructive nature of pop art and the anti-conformity of the B generation, in the process of designing this lesson, I found this really awesome painting called Automobiles in the National City Bank of New York by Clarence Holbrook Carter in 1953. So I see this thing and I think the neat lines of the parking lot, the cars are all standardized with their couple of small differences, like slight variations in shape and color. And then I see this one car in the middle that upsets all the symmetry and it's pulling out or, um, you know, pulling into a parking spot. And here I foresee, right, this flourishing discussion of nonconformity happening in my classes. And so I got really excited about it. So I get to school. First period goes okay. It's a quiet class. so I kind of expect it. Second period goes as expected and then I'm nervous and it starts to set in. Are we going to have a good day in third today? Is this going to be a lesson that finally works for them? (laughs) Silly me. So, we get going. I introduce the day's agenda. I start giving some background. I put up the painting. Some of the kids probably felt sorry for me day in and day out, and so they slowly start talking about it and analyzing the meaning. And then, kid that sits in the very back left corner of my room physically stands up out of his desk, motions to the painting, and I will never forget this, he says. Mrs. C, what if the dude just like cars? And I was mortified. And then I was angry. <laughs> I would put all this, you know, kinds of expectations on this discussion. I, I really just wasn't mentally prepared for a challenge like that. And it felt a personal affront. And I took it personal, too. Ah, uh, I was still a stupid new teacher at that point. So I sat back down at my desk. And I said nothing for the rest of the period. I don't even remember what I told them to do at that point. It was a tantrum, and I was pretty ashamed of it the minute I got home. So I did some research. I started thinking a little bit more legitimately about the question, which by all accounts, outside of his meant-to-be-a-butthead attitude, was a good question, and as someone who cares about philosophy, and in particular aesthetics, it should have been a good one for us to discuss. I'd missed the immediate moment, uh, but I didn't let it go entirely. So the next day, I brought them the story of the Brancusi works, Bird in Space, which I'd seen at a place, you know, a couple of different places. They have some at Lacma in particular. Uh, if you've ever been, you've definitely seen them because they're pretty tall and they're imposing and they're shiny. Uh, there's a ton of different variations and a variety of museums in the US and around the world. Uh, most of them are polished bronze, there's a couple that are marble. And they do not resemble much in the way of a bird. If you're looking for bird, that's not what you're gonna find. Um, they're minimalist, they're smooth. The only thing I could say that makes it kind of bird-like might be the point at the top end that could be construed as a beak. But otherwise, there's no interrupting features. Um, it's just like a giant, smooth, skinny banana. There's no wings. Uh, if it's a bird in space, it's a bird going so fast that it's a blur, and it's just the waves of light or sound or something that's flowing around it. It's a nice little aerodynamic body. Anyway, so I brought the story to class, and I asked the question again in a less butthead tone that was asked yesterday, and I had a really good, successful discussion about this concept of symbolism and interpretation. And it all dips back to Gatsby there, too, which was the book that I had just taught them before having this conversation, where we're still in the habit of trying to attach defined meaning to all of the different colors of that book. So I've honestly abandoned this idea as a result of this conversation year to year. The white dresses, the yellow car, the green light, all of those discussions about meaning... They happen in my class still, but I've stopped trying to be real objective about it and quiz them on it, and I've started to include this question about meaning. In 1957, William Faulkner was lecturing at the University of Virginia and had been there for a while, and was probably getting pretty tired of the same questions about his work, about symbols in particular, and whether he employed them purposefully or not. So when a girl stood up and asked him for probably what was like the thousandth time, he had very, you know, emotionally upset about it and kind of frustrated by the question, but he's had this to say. The same culture, the background of the critic, and the writer are so similar that a part of each one's history has the seed which can be translated into the symbols which are standardized within a culture. The author, as Faulkner continues, is primarily concerned in telling about people, in the only terms he knows, which is out of his experience, observation, and his imagination. Therefore, because even those which are not part of his immediate culture of the author partake of the same three things more or less, the connection of the reader and the authors in some way makes them both responsible for the meaning and the possibility of those continued symbols in the text. In other words, if you see it as a symbol when you're reading, as Faulkner said, then it's there. It was a super teachable moment. Not just for my students, but absolutely for me. I'll never forget it. I tell it every year. It's always relevant. And it has really become kind of an important foundation of many of the kinds of questions I challenge my students with today. It's such a valid question to question that meaning and where it's coming from. Hell, my philosophy and literature class is entirely indebted to this question. So if you're out there listening, Nico Lozano, I don't think you meant for this to be a type of career-changing moment that it became for me. But thank you for asking the right kind of question and making me a better teacher in the process. And to K.J. Garrett, despite the fact that you frustrated the hell out of me for a near-daily basis for a year, you've become one of my favorites, and I'm also a better teacher because you forced me to get over myself. I'll never forget that third period class. That's for sure. In 1934, John Dewey published an important piece of American pragmatism and aesthetics in a work called Art is Experience. Great book. He begins by highlighting the problems with art, both the physical product and the institution, uh, as being something that has become separate from concrete reality, remitted to a separate realm where it is cut off from the associations of the materials and aims of every other form of human effort undergoing an achievement. He attributes this to the influence of philosophy, whose dislocations and divisions of modern life have dragged art down with it, Uh, The influence of social life, where art's been connected to reflect and establish superior cultural status, which keeps it segregated from normal daily life, and in essence kind of puts it on a cultural pedestal. And also the influence of economy, where art can't be mass-produced, and so it doesn't get worked into what he calls the normal flow of social services. In other words, it's, for the rich and for luxury alone, highly disintegrated from real living, which we now know is a criticism that Dewey has made, of pretty much everything at this point. It's a vicious cycle, too. Art is then only what we constitute as art, and so you see it in a lot of the definitions given in the examples from my students' work earlier. There's a distance, a non-utility factor that plays into how we view art. So it continues to perpetuate art. Art is done by the highbrow, it's done by the fancy, it's done by the rich, or it's done simply for its own sake with no connection to real life. Abstraction upon abstraction. I wonder if this might be some of the reason why many of my students were unlikely to select the novel Huck Finn as art. It's not separated far enough, I guess, from real experience. It's a book, not an abstract painting that hangs in a museum, off alone by itself, totally away from society. It's, in a way, ordinary. We teach it year to year, so all students have access to it, and it's not even necessarily that hard to understand. Because it's understandable, maybe, it can't possibly be art. It's not complex or even maybe meaninglessness enough. But why does art need to be that way? As Dewey suggests, it is mere ignorance that leads us to the supposition that connection of art and aesthetic perception with experience signifies a lowering of their uh, significance and dignity. Experience in the degree in which it is experience is heightened vitality. Instead of signifying being shut up with one's own private feelings and sensations, it signifies active and alert commerce with the world. At its height, it signifies complete interpenetration of self and the world of objects and events. If art is what we do to express ourselves, to give experience of our inner state to an external object, which then becomes the basis for common experience with another, how is that separate? Why should it be boxed up after all of that? He says that the act of creating and the act of enjoyment of that creation should not be separate. But the problem is that we don't have a word for that unity. And as a result, we see the passive reception of art is a less meaningful part of the experience than the creation of it. But yet we go to the place of giving the receiver all of the power in deciding the aesthetic value of that art. And by that, I uh, even mean that even a small subset of the receivers of that art have that power. As Tom Wolfe pointed out in the Painted Word... They impose their beliefs about the art on the rest of us, Uh, and this is why, I don't don't know why we let this happen, it's not really clear. So, his question early in the text is to discover how to ground art as expression in common experience without relegating it to some separate art pedestal realm. He defines the act of expression as that which has some level of intention. An artist spends significant time dealing with how the object he creates comes to be expressive from the perspective of him as artist. As he says, An activity that was natural, spontaneous, and unintended is transformed because it is undertaken as a means to a consciously entertained consequence. Such transformation marks every deed of art. The difference he claims between art and general experience is that the artist consciously works to conjoin past experience and the interstate, with the present through a spontaneous objectification of his own thought and emotion. That objectification becomes the piece of art. He concludes, "...what is expressed by will be neither the past events that have exercised their shaping influence, not yet the literal existing occasion. It will be, in the degree of its spontaneity, an intimate union of the features of the present existence with the values that past experience have incorporated in personality." Immediacy and individuality, the traits that mark concrete existence, come from the present occasion. Meaning, substance, content, from what is embedded in the self from the past. In other words, art is not nature, but is nature transformed by entering into new relationships where it evokes a new emotional response. So to add to Dewey's criticism, I also think that there's an underlying assumption to our discussion about art, and particularly my students' definitions of art, that seems to believe art needs to be aesthetically pleasing or pretty in order to be art. That the experience has to be a positive one. I think that even when art is meant to challenge and subvert, uh, a lot of time our criticism of it or our talk about it and anything past the meaning of the challenge relegates to compositional things, color, form, technique, and all of that, which makes it significantly less controversial or at least less uncomfortable for us. It's the same thing we do with literature, too. We talk about the theme, but then we almost deconstruct it to the point that we stop listening to the ideas or lose the personality of the text, the communication of the historical individual who wrote it and about whom it's written, the ugly truths of the time and all that. We relegate discussions to the symbol green and hope and the many other formal things of Aristotle's poetics that we make the text sometimes this mechanical and removed element that is really meant to shock us and make us uncomfortable. But by making it less human, it then has less to teach us. So my husband and I went to MOCA in LA a while back, maybe about five years or so. Uh, you definitely get your fill of Warhol and Liechtenstein there too. And they also have roaming exhibits and things like that. So while we were there, there was one in particular that I found pretty compelling. But I'll tell you first, I thought it was absolutely hideous. This is definitely not something that I would put up in my house. Although, to be fair, it was about as big as my house, too. But anyway, we get there, and they have this description of the piece that's on a standing plaque outside the room that it was in, along with a disclaimer. And they had a staff member who was stationed there to basically ask questions and make sure you were really considering all of your options here and whether or not you wanted to see it. There were tons of warning signs. So, of course, after all that trouble, it means I have to see the thing, right? So we walk in, and the piece is there. It's a three-dimensional mixed-media, It's, I guess, sculpture, if that's what you'd call it. Arrangement? Um, well, there's nothing else in this room but this piece. So you can walk on three sides of it. Um, it's almost up on kind of like a stage-level platform. On it are all kinds of things. Like, there's plenty to look at. The back wall of it is covered in headlines from magazines and newspapers from around the world. Uh, It almost looks like one of those cheesy ransom notes from, like, bad horror movies. Everything's clipped out and, you know, copy-paste. But they all advertise violence, war, famine, drugs, death, disease, all the bad stuff. On the Sage platform are, like, window-displayed mannequins. Like, think department store. No clothes. But they're jammed like pincushions with screws through every inch of their bodies. It reminds me a lot of the messed up toys in Sid's room in Toy Story. Littered around, you've got twisted metal and bike parts and trash and little old fashioned television screens that are playing just tons of scenes of violence, m- uh, moving series of pictures of gory stuff. Uh, and the rest of it is these bad kinko printings that are blown up uh, in what you'd imagine like if you went to Google and searched things like decapitation or war casualties, disemboweling, or, you know, some of those subreddits that you just don't visit. So then juxtaposed with all of that morbidity, are what look like like various versions of pictures drawn with those old-fashioned spirograph toys that we all had as kids. Lots of geometric symmetry, which of course looks entirely out of place and almost makes the gory stuff kind of absurd and nasty and silly. But honestly, that might actually be an unfair statement because of temporal distance now. In the moment, all of that's pretty shocking and stomach turning, especially if you stare at any specific image for too long. But it's totally overwhelming and absolutely (laughs) hideous. Everything is on fire. Real people, they're all real people. All really dying, all dead, or disfigured, or maimed. And it's gross. It's absolutely gross. It's not near as nice as staring at Warhol's banana, which challenges you, too, but not so viscerally. The piece itself is called Chromatic Fire by an artist in 2005 named Thomas Hirschhorn, And it, I think it actually might still be over there right now. The sorted images... uh really are there to give kind of this real oppression of the violence and the violent chaos that surrounded our involvement in the Middle East, uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan in particular, and all the harsh realities of the goings-on of the world. So the juxtaposition then takes those images reproduced from what's called therapeutic vibrational energy techniques, which were created by a Swiss artist named Emma Kuhns, which was meant to have this kind of calming effect. It's the reason why when you go to the grocery store, you see those mandala and geometric coloring books all over the place. It's pleasing designs that suggest order, they help us to de-stress our lives. Well, you put those up to ne- like actual horrors just beyond our mundane stress, and well, how effective is it? I mean, I never felt calm <laughs> or order in that room. It seems kind of silly, right? And I'm sure that's part of the point. It tells us over here in our slightly inconvenienced lives once in a while to color some shapes to calm us down and block out the noise of the real violence and suffering, which is pretty hard to do if you're staring at it. I very much hate this piece. It's horrid. Ugly. (laughs) It's not something I really want to look at again just for the hell of it. It's like those movies you watch and Once is Enough, right? Totally enough. But it's it's been five years, and I still can't stop thinking about it, and I talk about it in my class, at least once a year. Is it art? I mean, it's a bunch of printed pictures, and screws, and mannequins, and words cut out, and reproduced simple lines, and masking tape, and cloth, and electric wires, and CDs, and stuff. Junk in a junkyard, pretty much. No marble, no carved wood, no hand-painted realism. Junk stapled about. But meaningfully arranged with an absolute message to transmit, so ugly, <laughs> does art need to be visually pleasing? I mean, this piece certainly challenges that notion. Toni Morrison, too, but she cheats a little bit, though. The realities of the text in Beloved are sometimes pretty explicitly confrontational in the same way. Seed's descriptions of being milked like a cow, Paulie's bit, uh, her mother headless and handsless, burning and hanging from a tree, Sixo's insanity, Hal's butter, Paul A's body also lifelessly burned and hanging from a tree, the baby in her arms lifeless with blood everywhere and her head floppily hanging from the skin of her neck. I mean, this is stuff you see in horror films. It's like watching American History X, only your brain is supplying the images and not a picture. But she wraps them up so nicely in language. The language itself is aesthetically pleasing, like the beautiful trees of Sweet Home The Seed's always feeling guilty about for remembering them despite the lynched bodies that are hanging from it. You'll remember the images of Sweet Home and the violence, but they're almost, if if I'll even say unfortunately, made way too beautiful by her ability as a wordsmith. Unlike Chromatic Fire, the symmetry and spirograph images that are her sentences kind of do work to calm the insanity of the violence that's contained therein. Book 2 of Beloved takes a decided turn. It's weird, because it isn't any more forward of motion than the previous section, uh, which is undeniably past, but it is kind of an arrested or suspended present. Some of the chapters are even given in present tense. A lot of different perspectives are given in these first chapter-to-chapter of the section. They're all recounting past events, but not so much for their pastness, but more for the exact relation of the present moment. They're here and now, which is interesting and certainly a departure from the first book. Chapter 19 starts with Stampede, uh, who's been interestingly a fixture in the backdrop of this text. He was a friend of baby Shug's, um, so he was there holding Denver after Seath was found in the shed with other dying children. Uh, It was also him who picked the berries for the feast that they had before the event. He's also the one that helped Seath get to 124 after she ran, Uh, In this chapter, you find out that he's got his hands full in all kinds of dealings in this area, tons of neighbors. And we already knew that he was the one that told Paul D. about Steve's actions. so now he's feeling kind of a bit guilty for the meddling in that, trying to make amends, but he fails uh, in an interesting scene where he walks up to 124 only to be denied entry, which is something he's not felt in this area probably ever. The most important aspect of his situation in this chapter is really just to show how remote and removed Seed has become. Partly it's her own devices, her shell was hardened like well before the event, and it continued to harden all the way through local events that probably should have kicked her emotional wall down. Things like Baby Shug's funeral, for example. Uh, And her inability or unwillingness more likely to cry at the funeral makes the neighbors around her even more fearful of her cold-heartedness and that forces her even further into isolation. So clearly, some of this is her own doing, but by the same extent her community further perpetuates it. The situation reminds me a lot of the situation in Camus' novel, The Stranger. His character, Merceau, also shirks a bunch of societal norms for his own reasons, although they're probably more removed or at least less enumerated in that piece, uh, which is really more for the sake of the philosophy than it is for the story, unlike Beloved here. But Merceau's mother dies before the book begins, and his emotional blankness is pretty apparent right away. He doesn't cry at her funeral. He's visibly annoyed by the heat. Uh, He smokes a cigarette during her wake. He doesn't even express any condolences to her nursing home boyfriend. He befriends a man who beats his girlfriend. He hangs out with a woman who might be in love with him, but he's just kind of there. And then ultimately, somehow he gets involved with this guy who's probably a racist, then he takes the racist's gun down to the beach, and then blames shooting an Arab man on the beach four times because it was hot outside. Good reason. It doesn't really go any better once he gets to trial, either. He shows no remorse or caring at all there. He gets called the Antichrist and just laughs it off. He doesn't even care that he's going to die. He just doesn't lie to preserve himself because he doesn't really care. And then he goes to prison and he's just kind of... Eh. There's a lot more of it, obviously, than all of that, but uh, the reason I bring it up here is because the similarity in the inward perception as wildly deviating from the social reaction is similar in Beloved as well. Merceau's actions are seen as deeply troubling and pretty infuriating for most people reading it, despite his nonchalance, in the same way that Seed's kind of bottling up her own emotions and looking for an outward community uh, for her sees her as a kind of a rabid squirrel. Both are described externally as monstrous and inhuman, animal, beastly. Stamp's conversation in this chapter with Ella proves it. As a result, Seath concludes that whatever is going on outside my door ain't for me. The world is in this room, here and now, the present, in her space. She's limited the universe to her immediate surroundings, the four walls. She, like Merceau, in his prison cell, has kind of accepted the state of things. It's incredibly existential. Uh, As Hamlet says in Act 2, Scene 2, I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself a king of infinite space. In a way, she takes back power here. And while externally it looks like she's on the losing end of social understanding of the world, she defined it for her own, for herself. She's taken back that power and shirked everyone's expectations. She gives definition, not them. Which harkens directly to the end of the chapter. In the midst of some interesting revelations about the nature of being black and white during this time, Stamp recognizes that the beast that was what white people created in slavery, and the fact that they perpetuated that oppression, brought about the animal that they initially feared. In treating people like animals, people become animals, and that reinforced the further treatment as such. Vicious cycles. But then this made the white people beasts of a different kind. And everyone is negatively impacted here. There are no winners, just losers. In this rumination, he realizes the definitions belonged to the definers, not the defined. And that those who had power, whites, called black people animals, and thus the black people became such. They didn't have the power to say, no, I'm a person, and that defining have any bearing on reality. Identity is a two-way street, but like I've said in previous episodes, It only gets you so far socially, at least, to define yourself as something if no one else is willing to recognize it. It's why identity politics are a thing, and it's why people in the trans community in particular have had to fight such a nasty, unfair fight in an uphill battle for recognition of their personal truths. It's hard to be uh, what you want to be if you aren't recognized as such. But by the same extension, Seed puts some of that to rest here by defining what is hers and taking claim of that in her own limited world. It's a strange paradox, and that paradox is physically outlined by this kind of cosmic voice set of the dead. As Stamp approaches, he hears the voices loud and wailing from the road, but as he approaches the house, they kind of fall to an unintelligible mumbling and moaning. Then, Toni Morrison does something super artistic and beautiful here. And again, you have to work pretty hard to maintain the ugliness of it all, and remember what prompts it, because the words are deceptive. The chapters are artistically masterful, but they're also kind of incredibly incomprehensible. I still struggle mightily through the next four chapters, which I have to think is partly the point. At the end of chapter 19 is the line, mixed in with the voices surrounding the house, unrecognizable but undecipherable to stampede, where all the thoughts of the women in 124, unspeakable thoughts, unspoken. All the inner states, the secret thoughts, feelings, truths, and realities, things never said, which actually is quite the horror itself. There are things that come up, particularly in Chapter 21, that should be shocking, and also really terrible and tragic and disheartening. The fact that those feelings have to exist, let alone remain silent, is just imperceptibly sad. As sad and as horrible as the mannequins with screws all over in the heads and the disemboweling. Chapter Twenty is Seath's voice, a stream of consciousness, full recounting pretty much of all the things that Seath did and probably feels guilty for, her thoughts unspoken, which are entirely geared at Beloved, but you can sense the guilt, shame, and other remorse for her actions that affected other people, like Baby Shug's, for example, as well. She makes an astute metaphor here. I know what it is to be without the milk that belongs to you, to have to fight and holler for it, and have so little left. And honestly, you blow this metaphor out of the whole slavery and the injustice toward the black community, and that's, in essence, what social injustice is. It's so much more covered and nuanced now. But this is kind of why the word privilege is problematic. The concept behind it is invariably true. But the word in any other context, privilege suggests something more than basic foundational stuff. It is a privilege for me to go on a trip. It's not a necessity. It's not a basic need or a basic right. It's a privilege that I can walk down the street and not be seen as threatening. See, now that's just basic common decency and social communal rights and trust. I don't like calling that privilege. It just should be. Just like in her analogy here, the baby's milk is the baby's milk, not somebody else's. That common decency is everyone's. It's not someone else's that we're just giving people privilege to. You aren't privileged to what is yours by right of humanity. Anyway, you get a stream of consciousness from Denver in Chapter 21 that is just heartbreaking, as you can basically smell the fear you didn't know was their all book. Most of the time, it looks like Denver loves her mother and is attached to her as she's attached to Denver, but the private feelings show Denver's whole existence in this book is a charade. Here she is, just waiting for her chance to run which she hasn't been able to take advantage of to the same way as her brothers. Recognizing that she's trapped and also afraid to do anything that might cause her mom to kill her. Yuck. So heartbreaking. I spent all my outside self loving ma'am so she wouldn't kill me, loving her even when she uh, braided my head at night. I never let her know my daddy was coming for me. Then her possessiveness turns back to beloved. She's mine. The same way Seed ended her narrative, also possessive of Beloved. Denver's life is lived as a facade of silence. As she says, made me have to read faces to learn how to figure out what people were thinking so I didn't need to hear what they said. Her life lived in a very telling, very knowing silence. Trapped, but not subversive. Chapter 22 is Beloved's unspoken, which I honestly cannot tell you at all what's happening here. Sometimes I think it's little snapshots of raw experience, maybe from the eyes of her as a baby. Sometimes I think there's something kind of post-death about it. Is the hot thing a saw? Is it something, like, hellish? I honestly have no idea, and I'm wary of looking online for resources to answer it. Uh, This chapter would totally be worth finding, like, an online college course or something, just for the sake of anything to grasp here. The key, though, is that it's in the present tense, which is all Beloved can live in. All of it is now. It is always now. No punctuation, no structure, a mismatch of ideas. But the consistency of possession. Which leads us to chapter 23, where all three of those voices become commingled at once. If you put yourself in the perspective of Stamp Paid, standing outside on the road from afar listening, this is what you might expect him hear. And honestly, you'd probably understand just as little as he does, maybe even less. I, maybe that's the point, though. What if the dude just like cars, right? Are we trying way too hard to find meaning here? But is there anything else that humans can do here? I think we're absolutely frustrated when we can't grasp that aha moment. When we look at the words on the page and think it's our fault that it doesn't make sense and that we're too dumb to get it and that we're just not trying hard enough that if somebody just explained it, it would all just come together and we'd see what's going on. But what if we can't? What if we cannot understand this? What is Toni Morrison's whole point? Maybe. And is there something to this that maybe there's just nothing to understand? That this is just simply utter nonsense, irrational chaos. Does it make it less artistic for it to be utter chaos, but purposeful chaos? Or does this show maybe a weakness in her ability that there's no appreciable difference between the voice and thoughts of Seath and Beloved in Denver. That Denver is just as dead as Beloved who is just as dead as Seed and that they're tr- trying to live or maybe living because they're breathing life into each other. And maybe that Toni Morrison is the one breathing life into all of them. Maybe all this is just word salad too. <laughs> My own brain's incomprehensibility trying desperately to affirm its own life and force for you to recognize it. That's what words do. What art does. It gives a physical, tangible, real communication to an incommunicable state of our existence that forces others to contend with the reality. I'm here. I'm real. You can't deny me. But like we said, if the community doesn't recognize you or laughs you away or your object of art, either as art or as whatever you want it to be, then are you actually there? I asked this question in another form of my juniors about midway through the year, and in fact, my seniors as well. In order to be a person, do you have to recognize yourself as one, and do you need others to recognize you as one as well? Seeds a monster in the eyes of pretty much everyone around her, but to her, she's a protective mother. Who's right? Is there a standard here we can judge it over against, even though we'll never be in a stance to properly assess all the evidence here? Do we just have to say this is an anomaly and see it for what it is, walk away from the art exhibit knowing we didn't like it and didn't find it beautiful, even though it is? And to say otherwise is objectively wrong, by the way. Or were we massively uncomfortable and off-put by the image that stares back at us? Can't apply it in my day because art is an experience self-contained but never to be mixed with reality. There are still so many questions. And this book gives me deeper existential angst than any book I've ever read and I find myself unable to get anywhere in my thinking about it. It's just unspoken whispers all jumbled together. Maybe this exercise in futility is purposeful and important enough. Maybe I need to stop trying, let it be alive and affirm its existence, and that's enough. We all need a little bit of life affirming. So here's my object for self-recognition and communal affirmation too. I'm here and I'm Stacey Cabrera signing off for today to go think unrelenting about all this some more. Tune back in next week to fill in the details. Have a great week, guys.